Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, vaccines, public health, and intellectual property. So, Richard, there's a big argument going on right now about what the United States can or should do to help other countries around the world that have been uh, much less successful than the U.S. in getting their populations vaccinated. And an argument has emerged recently that the right thing to do, the humanitarian thing to do, would be to remove the patent protections from the vaccine so that they become more affordable to, to produce or license in poorer countries. Now, you wrote about this week, uh, this week at Defining Ideas. When you wrote the piece, that idea was just sort of swimming around. In the time since it's been published, we had an announcement that the Biden administration is going to be pursuing this via the World Trade Organization. And, you know, their argument here is that not only would this be doing the right thing, we'd also be doing something that's in the national interest because of the goodwill that would result for the United States. What's your reaction to this idea? Well, I think it's a terrible idea. And I might add that even since the United States has made its announcement, there's been very protracted and rather passionate opposition to it coming from other major vaccine suppliers, Great Britain, Germany, and so forth. And also the pharmaceutical companies are dead against it. Uh, they think it's the wrong way in which to achieve this particular end. And I think they're right with respect to the reasons that they say. Uh, let's just start with the simplest explanation. What people need is not production capacity in vaccines, which will take six months or a year to develop. They need the vaccines now. The United States already supplies direct aid in one form or another to needy countries. If it really thinks that this ought to be done, there's no reason to do it on the backs of pharmaceutical companies. What you do is you buy from them at bulk rates, huge quantities, and then transship them to the places where they're needed. And in fact, you get better vaccines and you get them sooner. And you don't have to compromise the intellectual property protection, which is what will happen if you put this stuff in the public domain, where not only undeveloped countries could get it, but places like China. China uh, could get it and then come into competition with the United States or with the European parties. When people start talking about humanitarian stuff, uh, they are right about half the problem. There's a need on one end, but they're wrong about the other problem, which is how it is that you best supply it. And what's so striking about all of the impassioned statements by the Biden administration and its many supporters is they do not give any explanation as to why the alternatives that they propose are better than the simple alternative that I propose, which doesn't pose any threat whatsoever to the nature of the uh, intellectual a property system. So I think what's going to happen is you have to proceed by consensus in the WTO. It's going to take a very long time. Uh, there may be a compromise on waiver, but if so, these waivers are going to be very, very narrow. And the great tragedy is that people spend their time thinking about waivers. They won't be spending their time thinking about the things in other countries which have to be improved, which is namely the nature of the distribution system that they run. Uh, the question that you'd have to ask is how well have they done with the supplies of vaccines that they've already received. And my guess is having read these various reports is they've not done very, very well at all. I think in some cases, the number was 0.2% of the population being vaccinated. That can't be a throttle uh, or a shortcoming with respect to available supplies. It's the distribution panel. And that distribution is probably much more expensive to put into place and much more urgent. So what you're doing is you're basically making a political statement, trying to put pressure on the wrong institutions. It will result in many 
many needless deaths that a more senseless program would avoid. There is an argument about the distribution of the vaccines that parallels something you often hear about other projects that involve public money. So I'd like you to speak to the principal in addition to the specific instance here. And, and this argument is, look, the government had a big role in getting these things to market, in, including the $18 billion that went into Operation Warp Speed. So we don't need to be overly precious about protecting investment in the vaccines because we as taxpayers have skin in the game here too. And we should be able to deploy these things in some fashion other than the profit-maximizing one, if we see fit. What's your response to that? I think that argument is wrong. What they did is they made arm's length deals with different companies. Moderna was very weak with respect to its capital, and so they needed some infusion, which they got, and then they entered into a contract. Whatever that contract is, I think, is going to be the baseline for future negotiation. And if that contract gives exclusive rights to Moderna uh, with respect to the way in which the vaccine should go, then it seems to me that that becomes the new baseline over which these entities are made. It's also the case that it's not true with respect to Pfizer, which did this in other kinds of way. And it's not true with respect to a large number of the uh, sort of subordinate technologies and delivery systems and preservatives and everything else that goes. One of the things that we know about the whole patent system is that an operative element, a vaccine or a drug has to be accompanied by large numbers of other type of devices, some of which are protected by trade secrets, some of which are protected by other patent. And uh, you can't make that claim. Uh, So I think the simple situation is that if the United States made a deal with Moderna, it can renegotiate that deal. And then when it renegotiates that deal, it's probably going to have to pay to buy out the rights that uh, Moderna had obtained. Um, So if they wanted to do this the other way and to keep the residual rights at the time that they entered into the original deal, then they could exercise those pursuant to contracts. But we have to remember, this is with the benefit of hindsight. If, in fact, they had tried to enter into a deal early on, which gave the government pullback rights uh, uh, without any compensation to Moderna, they probably would have had to pay more money up front in order to get this thing done and given some other collateral benefits. So uh, the answer is these contracts are as important as anything else in this kind of business. And if you're talking about long-term development of drugs, which many cases take more than one administration of the president to develop, this one started under Trump and continued over. The last thing you want to do is to have the second administration claim that can undermine the contract of the first administration on the argument that it was somehow or other disadvantageous to the United States. I mean, the Biden administration has done something on distributions. I don't wish to fault them on that. Uh, but their utter unwillingness to um, uh, appreciate the contributions that the Trump team did prior to January of this year, I, I think is something of a mistake. If you recall during the election, uh, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden accused the Trump administration of idleness. Uh, Liberal commentators and progressive commentators were generally dismissive. Now it turned out that Trump had done everything right. I think the appropriate situation is to thank him for this, even if you want to attack him for something else. So I think those kinds of second-guessing arguments are extremely dangerous and utterly unpersuasive. Richard, the standard argument against price controls on drugs, or, or in this case, removing the IP protection, is that you're violating basic economic principles, that you want the return on investment to be high for these innovations, because that's what generates the incentives to create them in the first place. So if you reduce the benefits that are associated with innovation, you're going to get less of it. There is a counter argument that I've heard specific to the COVID vaccines, however, 
that says, well, this is sui generis. We've got a global pandemic. This is a one-off occurrence. We've already got these drugs in hand. So it's not as if we're going to prevent them you know, from, com- from getting more of them. And we're not removing the protections for other drugs or other vaccines. So you don't have to worry about it discouraging future innovation. Is that argument persuasive to you? No, I think it's utterly unpersuasive for two reasons. One is, as I mentioned at the outset of the show, that there are ways that are more efficient to get the vaccines to people who need them right now uh, than having patent waiver. The United States can increase the subsidy and buy them. Local governments could do them. The Gates Foundation could decide to put its odd billions to use in getting these things and transferring it. So uh, you could get the stuff more quickly and more effective there. The second thing is that it turns out every time you make an argument that something is special, turns out that it's not special after all. Uh, So there'll be another kind of disability, there'll be an AIDS plague or something of that particular sort, and people will start to make exactly the same argument. Or there'll be a difficulty with respect to malaria in Africa, and people will make exactly the same argument. Um, And the response is the same in every single case. Uh, There are ways that governments can foot the bill, either the local government or a foreign government, without trenching on the patents, and it will be more efficient and get stuff there faster. Let me just sort of indicate the kind of problems that you have to face. Suppose what you do is you license the technology or waive the technology, and one of these companies makes a bad drug. Now it turns out that the vaccine creates side effects. Who is going to be responsible for it? Are you going to have local situations in which they're going to be local people suing local people? Or are you going to start to say, since the United States voluntarily furnished the information through its companies to these places, they're going to be liable for the sins of its co-producers? Product liability law is sufficiently amorphous that put into the hands of very energetic and imaginative plaintiff's law, what they will do is they will find a joint causation story that will hold the American companies um, responsible. So now what you want to do is you say, okay, uh, let's go to these uh, countries or to the United States. Are you prepared to give them an absolute protection against a, a liability coming out of the use of these products when made by people whom they don't control? And then you're going to say, and are you prepared to put a couple hundred million dollars or maybe a billion or two dollars into some kind of an account so we don't have to rely on your good graces afterwards? These negotiations, in fact, are extremely difficult. To give you a historical advantage, of way back in 1977 or so, there was this fine flu fiasco in which it turned out that the United States wanted American companies to make these drugs. And what happened is the companies were prepared to make them and to assume any defects associated with the fabrication of the drugs, but they weren't prepared to take any of the risks associated with the warnings that were put on them. And at that time, I worked for the American Insurance Association in a fairly close way, and you had two conversations going on at the same time. Uh, one was that the companies, uh, uh, the plaintiff's lawyers and everybody else came to Washington and said, why are you guys worried about this liability? You're really very good and you're very professional. And then at the same time, they had a meeting down in Atlanta in which the topic was 15 ways ways to capitalize off of the swine flu vaccine, all which related to the defects associated with the warning. So the compromise deal was reached that the United States would essentially be responsible for failure of warning and the companies would be responsible for failures in fabrication. Four billion dollars later, it was all warnings because of Jean Beret syndrome 
for pregnant women, older people, and so forth, real issues. This is going to happen here. Um, when you start having vaccines like this, uh, the question is who's going to be responsible for sorting the people who start to take it? And somebody's going to make an argument. This is a joint enterprise between the American firms who invented the technology and the other firms that put it together so that we can be held responsible for this as well. And somebody says it will never happen. I spent too many times working in too many product liability type situations. All of this stuff is possible. So just to give you another example on this, there was in California cases brought against Conagra and against Sherwin-Williams uh, for lead poisoning as a public nuisance in which the sole source of liability for multi-billion dollars exposure is an ad that you ran in 1904, which nobody read or remembers. And it turns out that this managed to survive summary judgment in the California courts and that the United States Supreme Court refused to review it. So if you can have this kind of protean public nuisance theory in a case like lead, you could do it with respect to this. So the answer is, I cannot tell you exactly what theory I think is going to take place, but I can assure you um, it just takes one very clever lawyer on the plaintiff side to put this thing into motion and the copycats will immediately come out. So uh, these are yet other kinds of issues that you're going to have to face. And nobody here seems to want to be able to face them. None of these problems, I will stress, arise if in fact what you do is you buy the drugs as prepared by these companies and put them into the market. At that point, you should be able to standardize the warnings and standardize the quality control so as to make all of these particular issues start to disappear. So you don't want to create an open wound when there's no reason to do so. They're conventional metals that will make this work. Biden administration is simply irresponsible in my judgment. And the many academics who take the same position, I think, have really not thought the issue through. The issue of Operation Warp Speed brings up the question of how and when the government can be helpful in allowing innovation to happen, when it can expedite it. And there's something that you mentioned in passing in the piece that I wanted to spend a, a little more time on here. Uh, amongst the alternative mechanisms by which people try to foster innovation, that could be for things like vaccines or, or energy development or whatever, is prizes. The idea here being that if you establish a big enough purse for accomplishing a certain goal, that you can do a couple of things. One, you create a bunch of spillover benefits for society, because even if there's only one winner all of the different individuals or organizations that are pursuing the prize are going to develop their own innovations. And two, if the government is putting up the prize, you get them out of the game of picking winners and losers. You get them out of regulating the ins and outs of the process. You just end up judging by outcomes. So if somebody accomplishes the goal, somebody gets the cash. That's the theory of it anyway. You sound considerably more skeptical of this in your piece. Explain why. Yeah, well, first of all, figure out the cases where prizes are used. They're used for the great architects from the Pritzker Foundation. There was a big prize given to somebody who figured out how to measure longitude in a sensible kind of way. Uh, you give the field prize for somebody who can prove Fermat's last theorem and so forth. These are not industrial products. These are guys who, if they don't get the prize, will get no revenues from anybody except from speaking engagements. So it really worked. And also, you're not worried about the question of giving it to the wrong guy. Uh, the first guy who manages to prove Fermat's last theorem, named Andrew Wiles, well, fine, he gets it. Somebody who comes up with a second proof, uh, it's more elegant, but you already know that there is no solution A to the N plus B to the N plus equals C to the N, but N greater than 2 if it's an integer. So you know that, so it doesn't matter. If you give a prize, uh, think of what's going to happen. You give a prize of a million dollars. 
a good patent on a drug like a cholesterol drug and so forth is probably worth 10 to $20 billion at least um, on these cases. It also costs you well over a billion dollars, depending on how you count, to put these things together. If you give a prize to the first person who gets a cholesterol drug, it may be the wrong drug. Uh, the way the patent system is organized, the first fellow has to publish information about the mode of production, which allows other individuals who want to compete with him uh, to expedite the development of alternative technologies that will undermine uh, the kind of monopoly that starts to take place. Uh, so that what happens is if you look to recent years, uh, the ostensible notion of a monopoly when you have an exclusive right, it gets weaker and weaker because innovation by new companies is faster and faster. Much more efficient way to do this. You mentioned something about not picking winners. That's the essential proposition of the patent system. In order to get a patent today, you have to prove that it's got a utility function. You do not have to prove that it's effective commercialization. And in fact, most things that get patented do not turn out to be particularly effective, but the ones that really are uh, can be often worth billions of dollars. So the patent system is the one that starts to do this situation. Now you want to start talking about prizes, you get other problems. Two people come up with a different proofs at about the same time. Who gets the prize and why? Uh, so the answer is prizes are perfectly sensible uh, for mathematical theorems. They're utterly useless in this particular uh, context. And if this were a good idea, you would not just use it for drugs and so forth. You use it everywhere else. Ironically, the area in which the patent system clearly works the best is, in fact, with single complicated molecules. They're distinct and pharmaceutical products. Uh, they last. One of the features that people commonly do not understand about these drugs is that many times they're worth more at the end of their patent period than they are at the beginning of the patent period, notwithstanding the fact that new substitutes come into the market. Because one of the important things you realize is that clinical trials do not have a long longitudinal period. You have to compress their time. And when you put them on the market, there's always some uncertainty about unanticipated long-term effects. But when the drug is out there now for 10 years and so forth, uh, there's a lot of more clinical experience. And so those risks for the surviving drugs uh, turn out to make it more attractive because they're no longer very, very substantial. Uh, so what one wants to stretch is that the patent system is not some arbitrary hodgepodge put together. It was designed by a guy named Federico and Giles Richie's two characters back in the 1940s sat down and drafted what was an excellent patent statute for 1952. And they understood exactly how all the moving pieces came together. And when you start to see these kind of superficial criticisms of the way in which the patent system works, they're by people who simply have not spent enough time working inside the bowels of the machine to see how the engine starts to function. So you don't want to get yourself involved in the process. Intrigued, the important thing to understand is the system is not broken. Uh, you don't want to go around fixing it and making it worse. You don't want to do it on an ad hoc basis like with these vaccines and then left hanging as to whether or not you're going to extend it somewhere else. If you want to make some kind of charitable gift, and I'm strong in favor of doing so in many of these cases, then the answer is use the existing system in order to achieve that. Uh, this is the same thing that applies everywhere. So why is rent control a terrible system? Because you put it all on the backs of the landlord. And that's the same problem that you have when COVID says that you can't evict tenants who are capable of paying and small landlords go under it. The simple response in all of these cases, if you wish to hold a 
or help a class. You don't hold the opposite number responsible. You don't ban evictions. You don't introduce rent control. What you do is you give a direct government subsidy from public monies to handle it, and that way it becomes a democratic decision rather than a unilateral decision. This kind of thing by, by, by Biden is the same kind of unilateral conduct that was featured in many of his early executive orders. This is a kind of situation which you're trying to move by imperial stuff. And why is he doing it? My guess is if he actually had to get the appropriations through Congress, he would not get the ones that he wanted. Uh, perhaps he's right, perhaps he's wrong, but that's the correct way, way in which to go, to use the democratic processes and not the unilateral expropriation of patents. This is a big mistake, and we will do very well as a country if we back off of it as soon as possible. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, Defining Ideas, at hoover.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.